Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello there, fellow flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. This is episode 29 of PCPC. And for our 29th show, we're going to be taking a look at Air Canada Flight 143, a scheduled flight from Montreal, Quebec to Edmonton, Alberta on the evening of July 23rd, 1983. We have a surprise interview coming up later in the show that I'm sure you're all going to want to stick around for and listen to. It's September 2020. It's been one hell of a year. Somehow I'm still here. You're still here. Tess is still here. There's still air to breathe for now. I think we all deserve a little pat on the back for sticking it out through this storm of a year. You know who else deserves a little pat on the back? The PCPC Patreon crew. Thank you all so much for your support of the podcast. We just had our first captain sign up this month. A special shout out and thank you to Michael L., You keep this little show afloat, and we appreciate it. We just had a round of nominations for a future episode on Patreon. We followed that up with a week of voting, and the winner is Lauda Air Flight 004. So you can all be expecting a future episode on that incident. If you like PCPC and want to give us a little tip, a small display of your approval in the form of financial support, please visit patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod, where you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month, that's patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. You get access to episode preview videos, a download of the full theme song to PCPC, and you also get the knowledge that you're a part of this podcast. You help keep it around. Thanks again to everyone that's been helping out. Today on the show, we are joined by a world-class treehouse builder and dedicated unicyclist, Miss Tessa Andrade. 
Tess, how are you doing in September 2020? I'm doing great, Michael, and I've never met a unicycle I didn't like. (laughs) You seem like the unicycle type. Uh, Any movies or TV shows that we just have to see that you've been watching during quarantine? Ooh, good question. Um, Well, I have been absolutely addicted to The Vow on HBO Max. It's a documentary series about a cult. I'm not going to give anything away. You just have to watch it. That sounds interesting. I haven't heard of it. I'll have to check it out. I just watched Young Frankenstein for the first time, and I watched Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion, which I also thought was quite good. Mm, Yes, I love Hitchcock, as you know. Yeah, it's pretty great. Well, a few months ago, I asked you if you could go anywhere once this pandemic settles down, where would you want to go? And you answered... To visit my mom on the East Coast. Yes, and now that you've done that, I ask you yet again... If tomorrow is safe to travel, world's relatively normal again, where's the first place you'd like to travel to? Oof. Um, Well, Michael, I would say, given the current times and the current climate, I would really love some kind of tropical beach vacation. So anywhere from Hawaii to Tahiti uh, to the Caribbean, any of those would do, but somewhere very relaxing and escapist. Well, Tess, I don't think you're alone in feeling that. Um, Over the past few episodes, we've been keeping an eye on the number of airline passengers that TSA is reported to have screened at airports across the country. And on the Friday of Labor Day weekend, TSA said 968,673 passengers were screened for travel. On the same day in 2019, almost 2.2 million passengers were screened. So things are still far from back to normal, but hey, almost a million people traveled by air in the U.S. on September 4th. That's 44% of what travel was in 2019, but almost 11 times busier than things were in March or April of this year. So it seems as we all get used to living in this new post-pandemic world, people are inching out of their comfort zones and taking again to the friendly skies. Can you relate to these passengers? Have you been loosening up some of your personal restrictions and trying to enjoy life while still taking reasonable precautions? Yeah, I can totally relate to these passengers. I think that I have been relaxing a little bit. And I'm learning that as long as you are careful, take a lot of precautions and use testing to your advantage, there are ways to see people um, and still have a social life while practicing social distancing and protecting yourself and your family. Yeah, it sounds like you're finding a balance. I feel like I'm almost at a point where I would be comfortable getting on a plane. You know, I don't want to go out of my way to do it. I'm not excited about it, but I definitely don't feel the fear that I felt in March or April for better or for worse. Yeah, I definitely would consider taking a flight at this point. Um, I do know a few people who have done it. I don't know if I'd do a trip to Australia anytime soon, but a quick trip to New York? Sure, why not? (laughs) Well, we'll keep an eye on more numbers as they come in. Once again, today's show is sponsored by everyone's favorite online counseling service, BetterHelp. What is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is to therapy what Uber is to car rides. It's 21st century counseling. With BetterHelp, you can see a therapist from the comfort of your own home at a time that works for you and fits in your schedule. No more driving across town. No more looking for parking. No more trying to squeeze in an appointment between 9 to 5 on a weekday. With BetterHelp, it's therapy made easy. Speak with a certified counselor over video chat once a week and message your therapist 24 hours a day through their website. 
To learn more, go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. And thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring the show. Thanks, BetterHelp. I like to mention at the start of every episode that I'm not an aviation expert by any means. I've noticed over the course of my life that whenever I'm flying in a plane, I feel much more tense and nervous than the passengers around me seem to be feeling. We thought that doing a podcast on plane incidents would force us to learn more about how planes work and how these accidents from the past led to modifications which made air travel safer for us today. We realized that the human beings that were injured or died in these incidents are somebody's family member or friend. We never want to be insensitive when speaking about these events. We just find these accidents to be interesting, and we find it worth discussing how they contributed to building the safe mode of transportation that we all enjoy in the present day. Tess, you ready to get started on flight 143? Let's get started, Michael. Air Canada flight 143 was a scheduled flight from Montreal International Airport to Edmonton International Airport with a brief stopover in Ottawa on the evening of Saturday, July 23, 1983. The plane was a Boeing 767-233. The 767 was developed by Boeing in the mid-1970s as a replacement for the Boeing 707 and other older, less fuel-efficient jetliners. In the early 1970s, Boeing had just brought its massive and iconic 747 to the market, and they decided for their next move, they wanted to develop a plane that was smaller than the 747 that they had just released, but larger than the 707 that it would be replacing. The width of the 767 fuselage would be 16 and a half feet, right between the width of the 747 and 707. Originally, the plan for the 767 was to be a short takeoff and landing plane that they would market to airlines looking to service smaller airports with shorter runways. Airlines were a little lukewarm about that concept, so Boeing pushed the design of the 767 to be a plane that would service larger airports and fly a large number of passengers between major markets. The 767 would be Boeing's first wide-body airliner with only two engines, not four like the 747. In the early days, airlines got to pick between Pratt & Whitney engines or GE engines. The combination of new engine technology, state-of-the-art wing design, and lighter materials that the plane was built out of all added up to making the plane 20-30% to more fuel-efficient compared to earlier models, There's one thing airlines love, it's saving some sweet moolah. So the 767 was pitched as a plane that would make airlines more money. The cockpit was designed for a two-man crew. Advances in computer technology made it no longer necessary to have a flight engineer in the flight crew. So this was another way for airlines to save money. Boeing was saying to the airlines, hey, now you can cut down on labor costs. You only need to pay two humans to fly the plane instead of three. Another bonus was that Boeing developed the smaller 757 at the same time that it was developing the 767. Both planes shared the same avionics, computer equipment, APU, power and hydraulic systems, and had very similar cockpits. So this was another selling feature to airlines. Hey, if your pilot learns how to fly one of these planes, either the 757 or the 767... He or she can quickly know how to fly the other model with just a short training course. 
The 767 had seven abreast seating with two aisles. There was a row of two seats on one side of the plane, an aisle, a row of three seats, another aisle, and then another row of two seats on the opposite side of the plane. What this means is 87% of the seats on the plane were either aisle or window seats, which most passengers love. Just another marketing tool for airlines to sell to their passengers. The Boeing 767-200 had a passenger capacity around 216 and a range of 3,900 nautical miles. On July 14, 1978, United Airlines placed the first order for 30 767s. The plane was introduced to the commercial market with United Airlines as well. That first flight took passengers from Chicago to Denver on September 8, 1982. As of right now in September 2020, 1,279 767s have been ordered over the last 42 years. The plane used for Flight 143 was delivered to Air Canada on March 30, 1983, just shy of four months before the incident. The plane had only 150 flight hours as of July 1983, so it was essentially a brand new plane. It was the 47th 767 to come off the Boeing production line. Air Canada had recently ordered 12 767s, and in late July 1983, four of the 12 had been delivered and were part of the Air Canada fleet. The captain of Flight 143 was Captain Bob Pearson. Captain Pearson was 48 years old at the time of the incident. He was born in Montreal and spent his childhood in Saint-Anne-de-Bellevue in Quebec, Canada. Captain Pearson had over 15,000 flight hours, so he had a lot of flying under his belt. He was a quite experienced pilot. The first officer for Flight 143 was First Officer Morris Kintel. First Officer Kintel was 36 years old at the time of the incident. A former pilot in the Royal Canadian Air Force, First Officer Kintel had amassed over 7,000 flight hours prior to Flight 143. There were six flight attendants, the cockpit crew of two, and 61 passengers on Flight 143, for a total of 69 human beings on board. Again, Air Canada Flight 143 was a scheduled flight originating in Montreal. The plan was to take off in the late afternoon from Montreal, fly to the southwest for a short 35-minute flight to Ottawa. Ottawa is around 100 miles to the southwest of Montreal. Then Flight 143 would continue on from Ottawa for the second leg of the flight, flying to the northwest for about a four-hour journey over central Canada, ending up in Edmonton, Alberta later that night. When Captain Pearson and First Officer Kintel show up to work at the airport in Montreal on the afternoon of July 23, 1983, they're informed that the 767 they'll be flying that day has an issue with its fuel system and the fuel levels will need to be measured and confirmed manually before taking off from Montreal. Captain Pearson, First Officer Kintel, and a number of Air Canada maintenance employees all work separately at times and together at other times to calculate the fuel load manually. The decision is made in Montreal to take on enough fuel to get all the way to Edmonton, so there would be no need to refuel in Ottawa. Noticing that one wing's fuel tank had more fuel than the other wing, Captain Pearson had the refueler come back to the aircraft and add additional fuel to balance out the wings. This caused a 22-minute delay before leaving Montreal. 
Observing the request for more fuel, the head mechanic in Montreal said to the managing flight attendant, I don't know what's wrong with our captain. They've got more than enough fuel to get to Vancouver. After confirming the math three times, the flight crew feels confident in the situation, and passengers board the plane while the pilots perform their pre-flight check. After a few minutes of pushing back from the gate, taxiing to the top of the runway, and after receiving clearance from the tower, Air Canada Flight 143 takes off from Montreal International Airport en route to Edmonton International with a scheduled stop in Ottawa. Again, the flight from Montreal to Ottawa is only around 40 minutes long. It was routine for the most part. While in the air between Montreal and Ottawa, First Officer Kintel radios to maintenance on the ground in Ottawa, and he informs them that they'll need to do a manual measurement of the fuel load once they arrive because of the issues the plane was having with its fuel system. After a 35-minute journey through the skies, Flight 143 lands safely at Ottawa International. The fuel load is measured manually, and maintenance again crunches numbers to confirm the amount of fuel on board. Happy with their calculations, the pilots input their fuel load number into their flight management computer, and Flight 143 takes off from Ottawa for the second leg of the flight, heading to the northwest for the near four-hour journey to Edmonton. Originally, the flight plan called for a cruising altitude of 39,000 feet, but the flight crew requested and was cleared up to 41,000. The weather along the route was clear, and the crew was expecting a normal and easy Saturday evening flight in the midsummer above Canada to Alberta. First hour of the flight from Ottawa to Edmonton is just a typical flight. The plane ascends in altitude up to 41,000, and three different times above the cities of Timmins, Armstrong, and Red Lake, the pilots check their fuel load on the flight management computer and discover that according to the computer, they're actually saving fuel. It's been an efficient flight so far. Flight attendants serve dinner to the passengers and the flight crew. There's only 61 passengers on the 767, so there's a lot of space to relax in the cabin of Flight 143. Rick Dion, a maintenance supervisor with Air Canada, is on board, and he's flying with his wife Pearl and his son Chris. Interested in the new plane and wanting to check in on his co-workers, Rick heads up to the cockpit to chat with Captain Pearson and First Officer Kintel. Shortly after 8 p.m. local time, as Flight 143 cruises above Red Lake, Ontario, and just as dinner service is wrapping up, a warning pops up in the cockpit, alerting that there is low fuel pressure in the left wing. Initially, the pilots think there's an issue with the fuel pump in the left wing, so they just turn off the pump. But a few seconds later, another fuel pressure warning light turns on. Concerned by these incoming fuel pressure warnings, Captain Pearson thinks there's an issue with the new computers on board the 767. The pilots decide that it's time to divert Flight 143 to land somewhere nearby and safe. Winnipeg, which was only about 120 miles away at this moment in time, has a major airport, and it looked like an ideal place to try and land. The pilots contact Winnipeg Air Traffic Control and request an emergency clearance to 6,000 feet, and they're granted the clearance. Captain Pearson makes an announcement over the PA, telling his passengers that there's some computer issue going on that he doesn't understand, so the plane's diverting to Winnipeg, where an Air Canada maintenance base is. 
As Flight 143 starts to descend in the skies above Ontario, more fuel pressure warning lights come on. Suddenly, the left engine shuts down. With just one engine, the right engine operating now, First Officer Kintel and Captain Pearson quickly start preparing to make a one-engine landing in Winnipeg. As they're making these preparations for a one-engine landing, yet another fuel pressure warning light comes on. Two minutes pass, and just as the pilots are completing their preparations, at 8.21 p.m., a warning sound, an unfamiliar bong, rings out in the cockpit. The right engine has quit working as well. This bong sound indicates that both engines have ceased operating. At 8.21 p.m. on July 23, 1983, at an altitude of 28,500 feet, Air Canada Flight 143 has now become a glider plane with total power loss to both engines. As the second engine goes out, the displays in the cockpit go blank. Captain Pearson says, oh fuck. Without the engines running, an eerie quiet fills the plane. Power to the electronic flight display and hydraulic systems, both of which run off the engines, are cut. The only instruments available to the pilots are an artificial horizon, a magnetic compass, an altimeter, and an airspeed indicator. With both engines failing, the ram air turbine drops down near where the right landing gear is stored. Ram air turbine provides minimal power to control surfaces in case of total engine failure. There's a propeller on the ram air turbine, and the airstream turns the propeller, generating power from the wind. This gives the pilots of Flight 143 enough hydraulic power to control the elevators, rudder, and ailerons, but not enough power to use their flaps or slats, and Flight 143 was left without electrical power. So just to summarize... Captain Pearson and First Officer Kintel are flying a 767 with neither engine running. That's gliding along at 28,000 feet and slowly descending, falling towards Earth. They have a radio to communicate with air traffic control, a few instruments, compass, airspeed indicator, altimeter, artificial horizon, and limited hydraulic power to the control surfaces. Captain Pearson, an experienced glider pilot, Guesses that flying the plane at about 220 knots indicated would give the 767 the furthest range possible, would give them the most time and distance to get the plane down on the ground. First Officer Kintel searches through the emergency checklists and manuals looking for guidance for how to deal with a dual engine failure, but no such procedure or manual existed. 65 miles from Winnipeg, First Officer Kintel starts doing calculations to see if Flight 143 can reach Winnipeg Airport, given how far the plane has flown and descended since both engines went out. After looking over his math, he tells Captain Pearson, we're not going to make Winnipeg, and First Officer Kintel suggests they try to land at Gimli. Gimli was home to a decommissioned Air Force base that First Officer Kintel was stationed at, when he was in the Royal Canadian Air Force. There were two 6,800-foot runways at the base, though there wouldn't be any emergency equipment available if it was needed because the airport was an uncontrolled airport and didn't have emergency equipment stationed there. At 8.32 p.m. local time, 11 minutes after both engines quit, the pilots inform Winnipeg Air Traffic Control that they are turning to the north and heading for Gimli. At this point, Flight 143 is 12 miles away from Gimli, 
and the pilots decide to drop the landing gear. Because the hydraulic pressure they have from the ram air turbine is minimal and won't help them with deploying the landing gear, they try a gravity drop, where they drop the gear and just hope the weight of the gear falls down and locks into place. The left and right main gear fall down as planned and lock, but the nose gear only partially falls down. It doesn't drop into its normal position. On the display panel in the cockpit, the pilots get two green lights confirming that the left and right main gear have dropped and locked, but the nose gear light does not turn green. Now only six miles out from Gimli, Captain Pearson realizes that the 767 is too high and is traveling too fast. This plane can touch down on the runway. He's not going to have spoilers, reverse thrust from the engines, or anti-skid systems to help slow down and avoid overrunning the runway. Captain Pearson reduces speed to 180 knots. The pilots briefly consider doing a 360-degree turn, just to lose some altitude and get lower for their landing, but they decide that if they do that 360-degree turn, they might not make the runway. They didn't have enough altitude to glide through a 360 turn, so instead, Captain Pearson puts the plane into a side slip. He turns his control column or yoke to the right, and at the same moment slams his left foot on the rudder pedal. The 767 drops quickly, shedding altitude, but doesn't pick up speed, which is exactly what Captain Pearson wants, to get the plane lower to the ground, but not dive down and pick up a bunch of speed when he doesn't have reverse thrust to rely on for slowing during the landing. The maneuver is quite disorienting for passengers. On the left side of the plane, passengers look out the window and see a golf course below. And on the right side of the plane, passengers look out their window and see nothing but sky. Also, the plane's headed in one direction, moving ever closer to the airport in Gimli, but is in this sideways position, sideways relative to the direction the plane is going in. This pushing of the plane sideways into oncoming air accomplishes the mission of shedding altitude without picking up speed, but the one thing that's giving pilots power and subsequently some control, the ram air turbine, slows down because the airflow isn't moving the turbine as quickly due to this side slip. First Officer Kintel tries to use a backup system to get the nose gear to drop fully and lock into place, but is unsuccessful in getting the nose gear into locked position. So at this point, let's do a little summary. Flight 143 is a few thousand feet off the ground, no engines running, limited controls, instrument panels blank, nose landing gear hasn't locked into place, the plane is engaged in this disorienting side slip maneuver, which is helping them get closer to the earth without picking up speed, but the one thing that's been giving them some control of the control surfaces the ram air turbine is slowing down, and Captain Pearson doesn't know if he's going to have enough power to pull the left wing of his 767 back up and position the aircraft properly for a landing. So it's not exactly a cakewalk that these pilots are dealing with at the moment. Luckily, Captain Pearson's able to level out the plane's wings as it approaches runway 32 left at Gimli Airport. At 8.38 p.m. on July 23, 1983, 17 minutes after the second engine shut down, Air Canada Flight 143 touches down on its main gear at Gimli, inside 800 feet of the threshold of runway 32 left. 
Quickly upon touchdown, Captain Pearson firmly applied the brakes with a little bit more pressure to the right brake, and a loud bang results from two tires blowing out. Looking ahead out their forward windscreen, First Officer Kentel and Captain Pearson are shocked to see two boys riding bicycles a thousand feet ahead of them on the runway. No one at Winnipeg Air Traffic Control, nor Captain Pearson or First Officer Kentel, knew that runway 32 left at Gimli Airport had been partially converted into a part of a racing park. One portion of Gimli Airport had a go-kart track. Runway 32 left had a section for drag racing with a guardrail running down the middle of it. There was a road racing course as well. Families in a sports car club are camping for the weekend on the other end of the runway. There's tents, cars, camper vans, people hanging out barbecuing, and suddenly this massive Air Canada 767 that wasn't making a whole lot of noise because the engines were off comes barreling down the runway for a landing to the shock and surprise of all these families just hanging out and barbecuing on a Saturday night. Everyone hears the two tires blow out on landing, then Captain Pearson puts the nose of the plane down, and the nose gear that was never locked in place collapses. Flight 143 is humming along at 200 miles an hour while the nose of the plane scrapes against the concrete. Sparks are flying as the metal from the nose of the plane and the right engine drag along the runway. Captain Pearson steers the plane by varying pressure to the brakes on the two main landing gears. The two boys on bicycles pedal for their lives as campers quickly hop in their cars to get them off the runway. Fortunately, the guardrail in the middle of the runway for the drag racing strip causes a little extra friction and helps out a little bit to slow down the heavy 767 as it skids along runway 32 left. Finally, 3,000 feet after initial touchdown, Air Canada Flight 143 comes to a rest about 100 feet away from the family's camping for the weekend at Gimli Airport. Insulation between the inner and outer fuselage skin towards the front of the aircraft caught on fire. So once Flight 143 came to a stop, there was smoke accumulating in the cockpit in front of the plane. Campers ran to the plane with fire extinguishers to try and aid in putting out the flames. Some of our PCPC listeners will remember from a previous episode on Air Canada Flight 797 from June 2nd, 1983, Fire broke out on board that flight, leading to the deaths of 23 human beings. Flight 797 was only a month and a half before Flight 143, so this was fresh in everyone's minds on board Flight 143. Because of the smoke and fear of a similar devastating fire, an emergency evacuation was ordered. Since the nose gear had collapsed and the plane was resting on its nose, the evacuation slides at the back of the plane were basically straight up and down very steep, and this led to minor injuries for 10 of the passengers that landed hard on the concrete while exiting the rear. All 69 human beings on board Flight 143 survived the incident that has gone on to be known as the story of the Gimli Glider. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So now we have to ask, what happened? How did this brand new Boeing 767 have both engines go out at 28,500 feet? Luckily, thanks to Captain Pearson's ability to glide the plane under stressful circumstances to a safe landing, everyone walked away from the incident relatively unscathed. But how did Flight 143 get in that dangerous position to begin with? Well, as we mentioned at the top of the show, the plane was delivered to Air Canada on March 30th, 1983. So it had only been in service for less than four months. It was basically a brand new plane. It only had around 150 flight hours. When investigators took a look at the plane's brief history, they discovered that this plane had had some issues over the preceding weeks. 18 days earlier, on July 5th, the plane was in Edmonton, an Air Canada aircraft technician named Conrad Uremko was performing a test on the plane's fuel quantity processor. The processor is located below the floor of the plane, just behind the cockpit. It has two channels for redundancy, and this processor feeds information to the fuel gauges in the cockpit, where the pilots can observe how much fuel is in each of the three fuel tanks on the plane, the left, right, and center fuel tanks. Well, Boeing sends out a notice that they've been getting reports of issues with the fuel quantity indication systems on 767s. So the technician in Edmonton, Yeremko, decides he's going to test out both channel 1 and channel 2 on the processor to make sure everything's working correctly. When Yeremko turns off power to channel 1, so only power is going to channel 2, all the fuel gauges in the cockpit go blank. This isn't supposed to happen. So he does the reverse and cuts power to channel 2, gives power to channel 1, and voila, the fuel gauges pop back up. Uremco notifies Maintenance Central for Air Canada that this processor needs to be checked out because it appears that channel 2 is having some issues. The plane flies to Toronto, the processor is reset, and it seemed as though there wasn't an issue anymore. Nine days later, on July 14th, This plane flew from Toronto to San Francisco, and in the middle of that flight, all the fuel gauges go blank. Once the plane gets on the ground in San Francisco, technicians pull the processor out with the intention of replacing it, but before they get a new processor, they just reinstall the same one they had just pulled out and discover that everything's working normally again. The plane flies back to Toronto, processor yet again is tested and no issues found with it. Next, on July 22nd, one day prior to Flight 143, our friend and technician Conrad Uremko in Edmonton encounters the plane again. 
processor was being tested and he found that when channel one was turned off and channel two was given power, the fuel gauges in the cockpit went blank. He reset the processor and it failed. He did a test on channel two and it failed. In the previous instances, the processor was fiddled with, tested, and seemed to go back to working properly, but that wasn't the case this time. So Uremko knew that there was a problem that needed to be addressed. He requested a replacement processor, but there wasn't one available. So he turned off and put a piece of yellow tape on the circuit breaker to channel 2 with inoperative written on it. He also put another piece of yellow tape by the fuel gauges and wrote C logbook on it. In the logbook, Uremko writes, service check, found fuel quantity indication blank, channel 2 at fault, fuel quantity 2 circuit breaker pulled and tagged, Fuel drip required prior to departure, CMEL 28-41-2. MEL stands for Minimum Equipment List, which is a list of different systems and parts of a plane that must be operational to a minimum level for a plane to legally fly. This list is certified by the FAA. The Minimum Equipment List allows for some wiggle room if a plane's having some minor issues. For instance, if you're having an issue with the plane's landing lights, you can still fly the plane, but only during daytime operations. It would be illegal to fly the plane at nighttime without the landing lights. So if there's an issue with the plane, you have to take a look at the MEL, make sure your plane is still relatively safe and legal to fly, that you're adhering to any extra cautionary steps to fly the plane when something isn't operating at 100%. With this particular plane used for flight 143, the MEL stated that because technician Uremko discovered that one of the two channels on the fuel quantity processor was not working, the plane was still legal to fly, but a drip check was required before each flight. So since the processor that feeds info to the fuel gauges the pilots use to see how much fuel they have on board is having an issue, before each flight, a drip check's required. So what's a drip check? A drip check allows maintenance and pilots to get a manual reading of how much fuel is in the fuel tank by using drip sticks. It's kind of like measuring how much oil is in the engine of your car using the dipstick. Well, with the drip stick, it's slowly removed from the bottom of the wing, and the stick is pulled down through the fuel tank. Once the top of the stick goes below the fuel level inside the tank, fuel goes inside the drip stick and drips into a little cap. Measurements on the stick tell operators where the stick was when the fuel started entering it, so they can figure out how much fuel is in the tank inside of the plane. Newer aircraft have float sticks. How the float sticks operates is, there's a little floating ring with a magnet inside the ring in the fuel tank. This ring with the magnet floats on the surface of the fuel. A stick runs through the ring, and the stick also has a magnet in the top of it. When maintenance pulls the float stick below the wing of the plane, the stick comes down until the magnet in the top of the stick hits the magnet in the floating ring. When the stick stops coming out, maintenance can look at the graduations on the stick and tell where the fuel level is inside the tank. Now using the float sticks instead of the drip sticks, they don't get fuel all over themselves. So back to the story. Since the fuel processor was having these issues with one channel, they wanted to be extra careful and confirm the amount of fuel on board manually, so they checked it with drip sticks before each flight. 
Now we're catching up to the condition of the plane on the morning of July 23rd, 1983, the day of the incident of Flight 143. Uremko had a conversation about the fuel gauge, fuel processor issue with a captain, Captain John Weir, that was flying the plane from Edmonton to Ottawa and then from Ottawa on to Montreal that morning on July 23rd, the morning of the Gimli Glider. Uremko told Captain Weir that a drip check is required before each flight. Captain Weir flew the plane from Edmonton to Ottawa and Ottawa to Montreal, and all three fuel gauges in the cockpit worked throughout both of those flights. Circuit breaker to channel two of the fuel processor was off the entire time. Drip checks were performed before each flight. After arriving in Montreal, Captain Weir, while exiting the airport, ran into Captain Pearson in the parking lot. Captain Pearson was showing up to work to fly Flight 143. The two captains have a convo in the parking lot, and Captain Weir told Captain Pearson there was an issue with the fuel indication system on the plane, that a drip check had to be done before each flight. While Captain Pearson had this conversation and was making his way to the plane, an Air Canada mechanic, Gene Olette, was performing a drip check on the plane, and he entered the cockpit. Olette noticed the tape on the circuit breaker for channel 2 of the processor, and he decided he was going to try and give it a shot at fixing it. He reset the circuit breaker for channel 2, which made the fuel gauges in the cockpit go blank. He performed a test on the processor and came to the conclusion that it needed to be replaced. Olette reached out and tried to find a replacement processor and was told that there was none available in Montreal, but one would be available in Edmonton at the end of the night. Edmonton was where the plane was going to fly. Olette was distracted by a refueler showing up in the cockpit, and he forgot to deactivate the circuit breaker to channel 2 of the processor, so the fuel gauges remained blank. Captain Pearson then entered the cockpit for Flight 143 and found that the fuel gauges weren't working, but this wasn't a huge surprise to him. After all, he had just had a chat with another captain in the parking lot, and Captain Weir told him, Hey man, there's issues with the fuel system. You'll have to measure everything manually. To be honest, in the report, there's actually a dispute about what exactly was said between the two captains in the parking lot. Captain Pearson said he was specifically told that the fuel gauges weren't working all day. Captain Weir stated that they had talked in general terms about the fuel system situation. In any event, when he arrived in the cockpit, Captain Pearson wasn't shocked to learn that there was an issue with the fuel indication system because he was generally warned about it in the conversation with Captain Weir. Captain Pearson looked at the logbook and saw my main man, Uremko's entry that said, found fuel quantity indication blank, and this just solidified Captain Pearson's perspective that this issue had been ongoing for the past few previous flights, just had to deal with the hassle of doing manual measurements to confirm the fuel level before taking off. In actuality, with all three fuel gauges blank, the plane was illegal to fly. In the MEL minimum equipment list, it stated that two of the three fuel gauges must be working to legally fly. Captain Pearson said he brought this to the attention of a technician, and the technician told him that the plane was cleared to fly by Maintenance Central, and that getting approval from Maintenance Central had precedence over adhering to the MEL. Captain Pearson was also under the impression that the plane had been flying in this condition for the previous few flights anyways. To him, Captain Weir approved the plane to fly twice under the same conditions earlier that morning. He probably thought if it was okay for Captain Weir to fly, it was okay for Flight 143 as well.
So the flight crew and maintenance decided that all they had to do was make sure they could confirm the amount of fuel in the tanks manually. Flight plan for flight 143 called for 22,300 kilograms of fuel on board to fly from Montreal to Ottawa and then from Ottawa to Edmonton. It gets a bit confusing because refuelers deal in liters. A liter is a measurement of volume. Well, pilots are only concerned with weight. They want to know how many pounds or kilograms of fuel they have on board. So there's some conversions and math that need to be done to make sure refuelers can give pilots the correct amount of fuel that they need for their flight plan. Just to complicate matters even more, the 767 was the first plane in Air Canada's fleet to measure fuel by kilograms using the metric system instead of pounds used in the imperial system. So all Air Canada's planes used and had been using pounds as the unit of measurement for fuel weight, and suddenly this new 767 enters the fleet, and its gauges and flight plans use kilograms for measuring fuel weight, completely different from the entire rest of the fleet. Additionally, the 767 was a new plane that made the job of flight engineer obsolete. On the 767, you only needed a two-man cockpit crew now, a captain and a first officer. On the previous Boeing planes, there was a three-man cockpit with a flight engineer that would handle calculations like how much fuel was on board and needed for the upcoming flight. So for flight 143, the gauges weren't working, so they had to manually measure the fuel load. This was a four-step process. First, you had to do a drip check to find out how much fuel was in the fuel tank. Using the drip sticks in the right and left fuel tanks, they determined there was 7,682 liters of fuel in the plane's fuel tanks. So step one completed. They know how many liters of fuel were in the fuel tanks. Step two was they had to convert this liter figure, representing the volume of fuel in the fuel tanks, to kilograms, which would tell them weight. The correct way to do this is you take your liter total and you multiply it by 0.8. One liter of A1 jet fuel weighs approximately 0.8 kilograms. However, the flight crew and maintenance personnel multiplied their liter total by 1.77, not 0.8. Why 1.77? Well, one liter of A1 jet fuel weighs 1.77 pounds. So unfortunately, the calculations done that day were done using a conversion figure for pounds and not kilograms. Using the higher conversion figure in step two threw off the figures for the remaining steps. In step three, they needed the 22,300 kilograms of fuel according to the flight plan for flight 143. So they subtracted their incorrect figure from 22,300, thinking they were working in kilograms when they had converted to pounds. The last step, step four, was to take the difference between step three, the difference between how much fuel the flight plan called for and how much fuel was already on board, and convert it back to liters. This figure would be how much fuel was needed to pump into the tanks to get what the flight plan called for. So you can understand the confusion. You have a new plane with fancy new computers that do the calculations and work that the old flight engineer used to do. Then a problem arises with these fancy new systems, and suddenly the one guy you'd want around to do the math, the flight engineer, is nowhere to be found. So pilots and maintenance personnel have to start crunching numbers, doing tasks they weren't trained to do, didn't have to do all that regularly. 
No one knows whose responsibility it is to perform this task, so they're all trying to chip in the best they can. Also, this new plane in the Air Canada fleet uses kilograms when the entire rest of the fleet uses pounds for measuring fuel weight. An incorrect conversion figure gets inserted into the math, and suddenly the fuel tank is short 15,000 liters of jet fuel from what they needed to get to Edmonton. At the in-between stop in Ottawa, a drip check was performed, but again, the incorrect conversion figure of 1.77 for pounds was used instead of 0.8 for kilograms. So in the end, as I'm sure you've all put together by now, at 8.21 p.m. local time on July 23rd, 1983, Air Canada Flight 143 simply ran out of fuel while flying at 28,500 feet in the skies above Manitoba. So I was thinking about who we could talk to about this incident, you know, someone that might be somewhat knowledgeable about everything that transpired. Let me just try this one phone number I have. Hello. Hello there. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? Good. Is this Pearl? Yes, it is. It's a pleasure to meet and talk to you. Yes, a pleasure to to hear your voice. (laughs) It's me. Uh, Yeah. Who's the stranger on the line? Bob wants to know who the stranger on the line is. Tell him it's some weirdo named Michael. Okay. (laughs) Today on PCPC, we are honored to be joined by two guests, the captain of Air Canada Flight 143, Captain Bob Pearson, and Pearl Dion, a passenger riding in the passenger cabin of Flight 143. Captain Pearson and Pearl, how are you guys doing in 2020? Hey, we're doing really fine, and... uh... Uh, we're just uh, uh, on the farm moving into fall, so uh, we've got lots of work to do and uh, keeping busy and healthy. That's good. Where is your farm at, and what kind of farm is it? Well, it, we've got 100 acres. Uh, we run out uh, most of the land, and uh, we're about halfway between Ottawa and Montreal. So, you know, we're about an hour and a half from each city, and uh, it's kind of a good place to, to be during this pandemic uh, uh problem and uh, uh but we still get out a lot uh, we're going for lunch as soon as we finish talking here with you today nice has the pandemic changed your lives at all or is it already kind of a isolating thing to be living on a farm it, it's changed a little bit i think we're spending more time on the farm than normal um and that's probably a good thing you know there's always uh there's always things to do that you don't quite get caught up on and now we've got the place just Coming along, uh, like, uh, but but it, the winter. If, if we if if we still have to isolate in the winter, when for example we're both uh, golfers and curlers, and if we can't curl in the winter, we're not sure about the curling clubs opening. Uh, that that would that won't uh, be fun because uh, we've got to socialize to some degree, and uh, we we do get out and mix with people, but uh, it's not quite the same as it used to be, and I'm sure it is with you folks. Yeah, I think we're all just trying to get used to this new world, and hopefully it isn't forever, and, you know, we're just doing the best we can to get by day by day. Did you always want to be a pilot? Uh, Was it something you knew you wanted to do from a young age? How did you come into choosing that as a career? Yeah, it's a a bit of a story. Um, I uh, was interested in... uh, and uh, being a forestry engineer when I was young, and uh, we didn't have the money to go to university, so 
Uh, I worked in the uh, bush in northern Canada for three summers during high school. And then uh, when I finished school, I worked six months uh, in uh, Labrador and uh, came back with enough money to, to, to buy a pilot's license. But backtracking a little bit, um, my first flight, um, because back in 19, I'm talking about 1952, I had never expected to even be a passenger on airplanes. Mm-hmm. And one of those summers I was working in the bush, uh, they closed the forest down, the, it was dry, it was a forest fire that we were all drafted to fight in, and uh, we were trucked about a couple of hours uh, down the, uh, or up the St. Lawrence uh, River, and uh, I was just getting in a truck with a pack sack pump to to get in another truck to go in and fight the fire when uh, one of the fellows on the crew, the only fellow that spoke English, and I had been a little bit homesick to speak English, everybody else was French-speaking only, uh, or Montagnier, and this uh, fellow was a Montagnier First Nations uh, fellow who had actually was a World War II uh, infantry veteran who had landed in Normandy in, on D-Day, and it was the only one that camped in three summers that spoke English, and he said to me, uh, Bob, have you ever been in an airplane? And I said, no, no, I haven't, and he said, uh, uh, put put your pack sack pump down and and come with me. I said, Yeah, are you sure? Yeah. And so I ended up in the back of a Beaver aircraft on floats um, with a, a bunch of indigenous fellows uh, in the back of this Beaver with no seats or seat belts, and it was quite exciting uh, taking off the water off a lake and uh, overflying quite a severe forest fire. And of course, was, the air was turbulent from the the heat, and uh, we did a couple of Flights around uh, one of the uh, forestry towers that existed at the time, uh, and uh, we all slid from one side to the other. And that was the most exciting thing I'd ever done, and it went on from there. Uh, you know, I started thinking about what it would be like to be a pilot. I actually wanted to be a push pilot. When I came, when I did get my license, uh, the airlines were hiring with 200 hours, and uh, uh, so I was 21 by then, and uh, so I got in at a young age and uh, and spent 38 years uh, commercially flying for nice. Air and Asian Airlines, and uh, retired at 60 as a captain when uh, when that was the age of uh, mandatory retirement. I read that you were an experienced glider pilot. When did you start doing that? Uh, 1964. I was a Viscount first officer, and. Uh, uh, based in Montreal, and uh, there was a, a gliding club an hour away that I visited. I, I either wanted to try skydiving or uh, or gliding, and uh, I happened to go by the gliding club and, and ended up uh, getting hooked on it. I, I enjoyed it. Ended up, uh, you know, an instructor and teaching aerobatics and gliders. And uh, so I did that for about eight years and uh, I really enjoyed it and, uh, and also suggested People who want to go and think they may want to get in, going to be a pilot, that it, uh, for a number of reasons, it's advisable to, to start with gliding because it's uh, it's less expensive than power flying and it's true flying. Uh, you've got to rely on your, develop your skills and understanding of the air currents to uh, to stay up and uh, it's uh, it's a challenge, so more of a challenge and, and at less cost. 
Yeah, sounds like it, it would laid the good a good groundwork you'd need eventually in life. When did you start with Air Canada? Okay, I started with uh, was, the airline was called Transcanned Airlines back in 1957, spring of 1957, and uh, I started as a, a DC three first officer. Flew that for about a year. Uh, got on the Vickers Viscount for five years, the D- Douglas DC-9, DC-8, and I got promoted to captain on the Vickers Viscount in 1967. Did you have any favorite plane you flew during your commercial career? Is there one plane you liked more than the other ones? You know, I think probably, and it may have been, you know, as I got older, I I really liked the 747-400, and... Uh, it, you know, I had worked up to uh, turboprop, four-engine turboprop aircraft, twin-engine DC-9, triple-engine Boeing 727, and then the 767. And, of course, going on the 767 was a big change in technology, which, you know, was part of the event we're talking about. But uh, And then I got onto the... The last five years of my career, I got on the, uh, the the jumbo, the Boeing 747s, the older model uh, with the three pilots of the old technology, and then uh, took my last course at uh, Boeing in uh, Seattle on the 767, on the the 747-400, and I think now that I had was used to the technology from the 767. And the size from the older 747, I think that probably became my most enjoyable airplane. And it was long haul. I was flying a long haul with Air Canada for three years to Europe. And then the last year and a half, I I got a buyout with uh, 40 other pilots as Air Canada was downsizing a bit. And I flew the last year and a half with Asian Airlines out of Korea, mostly to New York and and, uh, Japan. And I think that probably, I don't, I, as I aged, I, I liked the longer flights and uh, and I was more productive and had more time off. So That sounds good. Um, so the Boeing 767 was a relatively new plane in the Air Canada fleet in July 1983. Do you remember what the training was like for that plane? Was it extensive or was it pretty short? Yeah, the, the, the uh, Boeing 767, when Air Canada bought it, it was one of the first airlines to buy it. And normally Air Canada bought airplanes after they'd been with other airlines for a few years. But but this was uh, probably the first experience of getting them, getting right up front on a, on a new airplane. And Air Canada had actually ordered the three-pilot version because it was uh, going to come out. Boeing wanted to produce a two-pilot version with computerization coming in. Airlines and pilots were skeptical about such a big airplane only being operated by with two pilots mm-hmm. or two pilots or an engineer. And and uh, so uh, the, the U.S. government struck a task force that uh, researched and determined that Boeing could build this 767 with two pilots if they could... Uh, either automate or have ground staff perform the the second officer or flight engineer's tasks so that 
no more uh, pressure would be or or uh, workload would be put on the remaining two pilots. That makes sense. And so, with with that understanding, Air Canada actually had ordered the three pilot version, and and the, the pilot association said to Air Canada in, in negotiations that. From our point of view, the third pilot was going to be become redundant if what was uh, if if the intention of of uh, not giving the first the captain and first officer anymore passed. So we can we told the airline that, that we would that we would uh, fly it with two pilots uh, and maybe carry a third just during the introduction period and. And uh, so Air Canada changed its order from three to two pilots. Yeah. However, to answer your question, when when we took our course, or we'd taken the ground school course, it was a computerized type course, uh, it, it was not very good. It was a need-to-know course. First time, we didn't weren't given background knowledge on how all the systems work like we had on all the previous courses mm-hmm. that I had taken. And... On top of that, the simulator that we trained in, because I was on the first course given by our Canada, uh, was the three-pilot simulator. So it didn't bear too much of a resemblance to the new glass cockpit, uh, new computerized uh, uh, version. And so to, to summarize, I would say, the course was not very good at all, and uh, I'm sure no airline or or manufacturer would try to introduce pilots to a new airplane with the type of course we had. The courses now are more inclusive with more background information, like on how all the systems work, yeah. or on a view of how the systems work. So if you have a problem, you can... Uh, try and figure out what how to deal with it better. Yeah. yeah, so you're saying they didn't really give you they wanted to replace the flight engineer with computerized systems, but they didn't give you training on what the flight engineer used to do. No, the uh, back in 1983, of course, there were no computers and cell phones and stuff, and uh, so uh, you know, my 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 own uh, computer experience. Uh, was the, the Royal the Royal Bank of Canada ATM and and and, and an old uh, a preliminary Reservec two computer there Canada had was a punch card thing but not real computerization and all we were told on course was, was there were over a hundred microprocessors not not what a microprocessor was not what it did not how they interacted and I should remind. Uh, uh, of, you know, back in the early days of Airbus uh, going into computerization on aircraft, they ended up at an air show at Le Bourget with an A320, one of their new air, new computerized airplanes, mm-hmm. landing in trees with three test pilots on board who couldn't figure out how to overcome uh, the, the, the uh, inputs to the controls that the computers were making. Yeah, and so this left us. That image left people like me with this this void of knowledge that that, that, that what were these damn computers doing? Yeah, 
you didn't know exactly what they were doing and that you, they didn't give you training on how to do it. it was, there was just this period of time where everything was manual and then suddenly computers are something you have to interact with. Yeah, and if I could go back a little bit in the history of aviation, you know, I was a sub, uh, DC-8 first officer. I was on Air Canada's first course. On the DC-8, Douglas DC-8 in 1960 was the first commercial jet in Canada. Yeah. And Air Canada lost three hulls uh, in that transition from propeller, slower aircraft, propeller-driven aircraft, to the faster, higher-flying jet aircraft. We lost three aircraft, uh, one in Montreal, one in Ottawa, and one in Toronto. And, and now the, tradition, the transition from non-computerized to computerized aircraft, for me, uh, was even more difficult. Um, just not understanding and, uh, and not having adequate background information, like I said. Yeah, just proper training. That all right. makes sense. That makes sense of the situation you found yourself in in July of 1983, given your career of flying planes and not having to interact with computers. And suddenly you got a brand new plane, you rely heavily on computers, and they didn't give you adequate training on what to do if there's an issue with the computers. That was part one of Air Canada Flight 143. We'll be posting part two in a few days. Thanks to Captain Bob Pearson, Pearl Dion, and Tess Andrade. And thank you to you, the listener. We'll be posting part two in a couple days. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.